Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast is more 90s than those two epic fights between Steve Collins and Nigel Benn. Don't do it again, lads. Seriously, don't do it again. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for joining us and hitting that download button, whether it's your first time here or you've been with us for the ride, which has been... 49 episodes so far. Mm -hmm. More on that in a bit. How are you enjoying the summer? No tournament. Yeah, it always feels a bit weird, doesn't it, when there's no tournament. Really, really missing the footy at the moment. Uh, I was looking after my daughter on Saturday while my wife was at work. And usually on those occasions, we're sat in front of the TV watching whatever game is on live in the morning. Then sitting through Jeff Stelling as well. Or going to games as well. I'm, I'm missing that. So yeah, it's been one of those summers in between tournaments that you really do miss the footy. But it will be back soon. Don't worry. And to fill that gap, which I hope we did last time out especially... Uh, we're here to do that because we did our tournament 11s and I really, really enjoyed this one. I do like picking 11s. It's something I sit there when I'm bored that just randomly picking 11s, whatever theme and subject or whatever. But this one was particularly fun, especially given the rules. Me and Joel picking our best 11s from the tournaments of the 90s. And I think a few surprises were sprung in that, uh, particularly in mine, possibly. But thank you to everyone who got in touch on Twitter who picked their own 11s of the tournaments of the 90s. It was really interesting to see. And I think those rules made it a little bit harder but made it more fun because I think each team uh, was different and unique in its own way. I think I'm the only one that's picked JJ Okocha. But as I said on the pod last time out, there was just something about him during that 98 World Cup. I mentioned more than 94 during the, the spiel I was giving. But it was more than 98 when he had that red coloured hair or ginger coloured hair. Orange, actually, that'll be the that'll be the colour I'm thinking of. Um, that really uh, sort of got to me and wanted to be like him. He's number ten shirt and stuff. And I do remember the '94 as well, as I said that kit. But yeah, JJ Kocha was a bit of a random pick from mine. As was I got I got to say this as well. Scott Tweed, a friend of the show, he's been on here before uh, with us as a guest on the show. He did his eleven and randomly picked George Weir. Now, I know I said tournaments of the 90s, but I was a bit more specific when I said, you know, Italian 90s, the World Cups and the Euros, basically. Um, I think he threw in George and then gave me the the reasoning that he was in the African Nations Cup. Fantastic reasoning, Scott, but not playing between the rules. Uh, We'll have to pull you up on that one next time you're on the show. Today, though, we are back with our countdown of the season by season in the 90s, and we switch attention to 1995-96, the story of, well, it really was one story season, and when I was doing my research uh, for the pod this week, and usually, you know, the title race is probably one of the main talking points, but this season in particular, everything that kind of happened, all the big talking points from 95-96 centred around those top two teams in Newcastle and Man United. And you had the Kevin Keegan rant, the 4-3 game at Anfield, which is, you know, the greatest game of all time, as Sky call it, whatsoever. So the, the pod is dominated by that. We have a Man United voice and a Newcastle voice as well, so that helps. Um, there are tidbits of other things, of course, um, but it really was the story of that season. So there is probably more on the title race than others we've done in this countdown series, but I think it still works for that season. We do, of course, talk a little bit Euro 96, but we've got two pods dedicated to them. Go back in the archive and listen to them anyway, and a few bits of bops on the others. Um, we had some memories as well. I put this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago because we were slightly delayed in recording this episode, but it has been done now. It's in the can. Um, so here was a few of you got on touch on Twitter um, with your memories of the 1995-96 season. Austin Long says Cantona's goal in the FA Cup final. Uh, we don't really cover that. It was one of those things we've 
we do mention it, but we did the FA Cup pods uh, a couple of episodes ago where we really talked in detail about that. We do mention it, but of course, a big memory from that. Although such a drab final, who can forget those horrible cream suits that uh, May- uh, sorry Liverpool wore in that final? It's one of those iconic images, isn't it, of that season, of that decade, really. Uh, Andy Ruckel, a uh, friend of the show who's been on uh, with this before, said, uh, Gubbing Man United 4-1 on New Year's Day. Fergie convinced that the ref sub Paul Scholes was poorly and switched him from Kevin Pilkington, who was in the stand. Schmeigel had actually pulled a muscle in the warm-up but played the whole first half. Pilkington's first touch was to pick the ball out the net. Also, William Prune's last two appearances for Man United. So, yeah, went into great detail with that one. Um, ben Moxham says, signing Brud Hullet and still wondering to this day how he managed to pull it off. Yet we talk about that on the show. Scott Tweed, oh, you're getting a second mention, Scott. Uh, Euro 96 or the Bosman ruling. I, we didn't really talk about the Bosman ruling um, in great detail, mainly because it's although it happened in the 90s and in this season, it didn't really affect football as much, I think, until the next decade. It was a couple of big ones. Obviously, John Mark Bosman himself, Stephen Manaman is a big one. Um, but I, we just mentioned it. it well, I do go into a bit more detail in the book, so there's a cheap plug there for the book if you want to go and read that. Brian Jeeves, at Brian C. Jeeves, says, Euro 96, so many memories, so many penalties. Yep, definitely. Uh, Nige, at Nige KS, says, Graham Fenton popping up two in against Newcastle and Rovers beating them 2-1 at Ewood to fire up the title race. Ultimately, though, Keegan. Yeah, we do mention good old Graham Fenton. Mark Rovers, again, someone who's been on the show with us. Um, he, he mentions that game as well about those two goals and Graham Fenton. Uh, Glenn Phillips says, my favourite season ever. Emergence of the class of 92, epic title race, best game of the 90s and Euro 96, the cherry on the top at the end. Well said, Glenn. We talk all about that, of course. Simon Needle at Simon Needle says, Cantona's return, your Boas gold, David Booth's leg break, Man City relegated, thought they were okay until Quinn ran out. Hanson's kids comment, of course, we mentioned that. We don't actually mention that Man City moment, but of course it's the Allen Ball. Uh, I think that was at Anfield, wasn't it? They thought they'd done enough to survive where they actually needed a goal and they were putting it in the corner and, and wasting time and really they needed to win. So yeah, that was one that happened. Man City relegated along with QPR. You know, we don't really mention that. And Bolton that season. Uh, he goes on, Simon, to say, United win the title with kids. Oasis playing main road. Collymore opening day goal. Newcastle's kits. Yeah, great kits. Rush's final game. Great season. Again, a lot of people appreciate in 95, 96. Uh, Kane Wilson PT United's great kit Nightmare at Southampton Matthew remembers that quite unfondly uh, Yaboa is another one that Kane mentions uh, Stephen Castello I think I've uh, pronounced that right at Stee Unit Cantona's come back from about February on just deciding to win the league on his own yeah it was Cantona season the football writers player of the year at Matt Rogers 180 says I'd love it if we beat them love it Apart from that, not much as I was born three days after their FA Cup final. Oh, God, that makes me feel old. Uh, Glenn Cheesy, 81, says Batty and Lasso's fight, which had on my notes about uh, Batty and Lasso having that scrap in the Champions League for Blankburn. Um, but we just didn't get around to mentioning it on the show with the guys. But yeah, of course, that was a big moment in the night. It was a very bad season for English clubs in Europe. They'd made no really impact whatsoever other than that fight between David Batty and Graham Lasso. So yeah, that's worth giving that mention because we didn't quite get round to that on the show. Uh, last couple on these, Joseph Pick- Picard at Joseph Picard. Forest in the UEFA Cup. That was the one shining light, actually, in the European campaign. Forest did pretty well in the UEFA Cup that season. Um, so, yeah, good shout out to them. And finally, uh, Glenn Phillips again says, The Merlin sticker collection peaked that year, in my humble opinion. Huge regrets at my f- failure to fill it. 
Hashtag got got need. I think I did feel that one. Um, yeah, 95. That was the black one, wasn't it? I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think I've filled that album. So thank you very much for all those memories. If you want to get in touch yourself, please contact us at AK90s on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, when we do our next pod, which will be, well, actually in two pods time because I'll get to the next pod in just a second but when we do 97, 96, 97 uh, I'll put up an, again a, a little picture usually of the season video which I'm trying to find some of them are harder than, to find than others but I'll, I'll pop that up on Twitter and share all your memories with us and any other memories you've got of the 90s as I always say on here if you've got anything lying around that's very 90s specific stick it on Twitter or on Facebook hashtag us or at us or whatever the uh, preference is these days do that and uh, we might even start an Instagram account I don't know I've been toying with the idea I've done it myself recently it's something I stayed away from for a long time just I don't really particularly take a lot of pictures uh, personally but I've got an, uh, an Instagram account that's at Ash Rose UK as well as me on Twitter so we might do one for AK90s yet I haven't quite decided the other thing you can do to support the show as well, if you're a, a iTunes user and you listen to the pod through that medium, then please give us a five-star rating and a review. That is very, very much appreciated. It really helps us and really keeps the show going because we have now reached, we're about to reach our 50th episode. Yes, amazing for us to go 50 episodes. That's the next time out. Uh, it kind of crept up on us, actually. I didn't even really realise until I got a text from Joel, a um, friend of the show, regular, grandfather clock of AK90s um, he texted me to say do you know it's 50 episodes coming up and the stars aligned and which I'll go into pretty much more on the intro to the next episode the 50 episode but we've got a special episode where we do a well me and Alexi Lalas go one on one for 45 minutes an icon of the 90s I thought that was a really nice thing to do for our 50th episode and uh, the way it came about was really random really just kind of coincidence but I'll, I'll go into that next time but that will be our next episode 50 of AK 90s me and Alexi Lalas and a few little other bits and bobs about the 90s but a really special one before we get back to our countdown talking of which though let's get on that today we welcome Matthew Christ back on the show who is our being a Man United guy isn't he becoming especially in this countdown he's the man for all Man United so he'll be talking that in the title race and Cantona's return alongside David Black who is the man behind the championship manager blog and the Twitter feed CM9798 on Twitter and he's also the author of a fantastic book called The World According to Championship Manager 9798 great read just little quirky read of what could happen through the game engine of Championship Manager during the 97-98 season. So, as the blurb says, football, Vindaloo and Michael Owen, World Cup 98, champ man style. Brilliant. As we all know, we're all fans of Championship Manager here on Alive and Kicking. And go back to our games pod that we did last year to, to relive some of those memories. And at one point, we will do a dedicated champs episode where I can talk about Kennedy Bakasioglu as much as I like. But we're talking 95-96 today. It's myself and Matthew Christ and David Black and my special guest today is former Newcastle who was around that team this season although he moved on halfway through the campaign onto Bolton also played for Blackburn and Leeds in the 90s his former midfielder Scott Sellers joins us on today's show so sit back get a cold one in this nice it's a sunny day today well I'm recording this on Independence Day so happy Independence Day to all those American listeners and all the Americanisms of the 90s yes Roy Wegley and listen to us AK90s here doing the countdown 1995-96 I'm Ash Rose enjoy the show 
Here we go then, 1995-96, a very exciting season, especially at the top of the Premier League table, which we'll get into with today's guest. Firstly, uh, somebody who's a regular to our show now, he's our Man United correspondent, a journalist. You may have read his readings, particularly on Football Whispers, where he does some great nostalgia stuff. Check it out. Uh, Mr. Matthew Christ, how are you doing? Very well, Ash. Thank you. Very well. Good to be back. Good to have you back. We'll get into all Man United in just a second. And joining him in the black corner, I suppose you would call it, especially for this edition of AK90s and this big title tussle there was this season. He is the author of The World According to Championship Manager 97-98. Fantastic read. We'll get him to tell us about that now. Um, David Black, how are you doing? Hi, Ash. I'm, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on as well. Thank you. Uh, before we get into it, then tell us about the book, because I've got it here sitting next to me. I've read it. Uh, it's a very good book for everyone who's into Championship Manager, which we've talked about many times on this show. Um, great season as well to choose from. How did the book come about? And tell us about the, the Twitter feed as well. All right, yeah. Well, um, I started the, uh, the Championship Manager in 1978 uh, blog um, early 2015. And uh, it seemed to get quite a good reaction on, on Twitter and that sort of thing. And then uh, I was asked by a chap called Chris Darwin if I fancied writing a book for his uh, publishing company, uh, which we did. And it's just a sort of a light-hearted look at how the season 1978 pans out on the game compared to real life. And I uh, tried to lead England to World Cup glory in the process, but you'll have to buy the book to see how that works out. <laughs> Why 97-98? Why did you choose that season? Um that was it was a tough call between that one and uh, 2001 2002. Uh, they're both my favourite versions of the game, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I just thought there's a bit more sort of humorous anecdote about yeah. 97 98 just because it's you can sort of say well that didn't pan out like that, and there was there was more of you know players who didn't really go on to achieve that much. Um, whereas 102 has a few sort of cult players in um, who it's been well documented how they got on in real life. You know, there's been all sorts about the likes of Cherno Samba and that. So I just wanted something a little bit different. Um, and I, th- I think it's gone down pretty well. So yeah, no, that's good. Kennedy Bakasioglu, that was always my go-to player. I'm pleased you said his surname and not yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> I've learned that over the years because I, I used to love him and then uh, he didn't turn out as well in real life, did he, as well? Uh, anyway, they never do. let's talk 90s because he's very much in the next decade. Uh, we'll, we've got football CVs. Matt, we're on quite far down your CV now. We're talking kits, which is always one of my favourite subjects. Um, your favourite Man United kit from the 1990s? Yeah, well, the, the, anyone that knows me will know this is a, a pretty easy easy choice i know it's one that you like as well but i was just thinking about some other good united kits it's a good from era. that era really yeah i mean the black one i think was was good i think it was it was it was groundbreaking as well because it was pretty much the first black kit that anyone yeah. had ever had before because of the referees changing to green and then every other color there is available um so yeah i really like the black kit and around about the same era I think it was just before that or maybe around about the same year was the green and yellow the newton heath kit which i think was was really smart yes. and uh, i particularly liked i don't know if you remember there was a, a promotional poster for it where all the team had flat caps and yeah. moustaches we on spoke dressed to up as, um, paul parker about that yeah yeah he ago, was in yeah. He, he, yeah he was in there as well yeah um but for me it's gonna have to be the 91 is it 91 to 92 or uh, 89 90 to 92 the blue and white um maple leaf kit as oh. we've started to call it now um i just think it was it was great it was just unlike anything united had ever had before i know they always used to wear blue as a, as a third kit as a change kit but that i remember the first time i saw it in the back of um shoot or match magazine thinking what on earth is that and you couldn't see what it was in a picture it wasn't until i, I think i ordered it on mail order at the time you know when you had to wait 28 days for your kit to come through or what have you and it wasn't until then that i actually saw how it 
how it was designed and made and i still i still got it i still got the, the kids kit back at my parents house but i just thought it was a really really interesting kit and it was in the, an era that i loved as well that sort of early 90s you know just before united became the force that they went on to become but um they had some great great days in that kit i remember they beat arsenal away in a league cup game 6-2 yeah Sharp. Mm. they also lost the league in that kit as well though at anfield in 92 which anyone that knows me will know i still haven't got over but um <laughs> i just i just remember that it had to be that kit as soon as you asked me the question i thought there's no doubt i tried hard to think of another one that it could be but no it's got to be that blue one no i'm, I'm with you as read as listeners will know i'm it's in my top five kits of the 90s we did a show with with john devlin the great true colors kits man uh before yeah. just at christmas i think it was and that was in my top five uh yeah. what do you think of the the rehash that's come out this season i i'm not that keen on it to be honest i'm, I'm all for retro kits and yeah. i think great do it but i think they should have just gone for the same design yeah, I, I, I don't do. like that i think it's a bit half-hearted they it's like a token nod to um to that design and and as much as i'm going to contradict myself here because i said i like that black united kit i'm not actually that keen now on black away kits they seem to be a bit i don't know they just seem a bit dull they don't do anything for me and I, i'd rather they'd gone for maybe the whole kit being in that black and white maple leaf rather than yeah. the sort of panel chest either that or just go and do it blue and white again i don't know yeah. why i, I thought they might they do it the the darker blue that they've been wearing and they, they're more synonymous yeah. with but yeah yeah it's a bit so, try to be a bit cooler, haven't they? Um, outside yeah. of Old Trafford, then what? I mean, the nineties is a plethora of fun kits to choose from. Yeah. There's a few at St James's as well that David will remember. But what's your favourite nineties uh, kit outside of Man United? Yeah, again, a few to choose from. I really like the Villa one in the uh, very early nineties. I think it was an Umbro kit with a pot stud collar. I, like, I think that was eighty nine. That wasn't under the Doctor Joseph Bengloff's era. I think that was. <laughs> The well-remembered, um, yes. Yeah, um, I like their kit with the bootlaces. They had the, the sort of classic Daily Atkinson yeah. kit. I really like the, the Newcastle kit of this season, actually, the classic granddad yeah. shirt collar. But I'm after much thought and many sleepless nights, I've plumped for the Forest kit from 92, 93, oh, and 93, choice. 94, the, the classic pinstripe yeah. kit. Um, I just think it's just so simple, but so effective. I think it was simple and effective then, but I think if you brought that back now, which they, they almost have, haven't they, with the... Yeah, the collar. I think that's what was so good about it, the mm. collar, because it was so understated. Kits back then, the collar tended to be white or, a, a, you know, a contrasting colour with the body of the kit. And there was usually lines around it and a pop stud or something. But it, just the fact it was just like a shirt collar, was, yeah. I just thought it was really simple and really effective. And, and the bat, the classic badge with the, the shield pattern, a great kit. I was actually looking on on eBay to see if they're still around and there's still a few out there, but pretty expensive yeah now, oh they're on my kit wish list which uh, is yeah. getting, getting longer and more expensive by the minute but no good choice that one uh, david it's a debutant so we go right back to the start to you um i don't know if this was an easy pick or not i, I can i consider it might be but your favorite newcastle player of the 1990s uh well i didn't want to go um standard alan shearer yeah. because he scored all the goals so um i, I went for peter beardsley um oh. who was a favorite of mine um as i was growing up um he came back to us in 1993 and really inspired some great times with, with Kevin Keegan. He was uh, a lethal partnership with Andy Cole um, and he was our captain in this particular season we're going to talk about. Um, but he was, considering he was knocking on 34-35 by the season, he was endless amounts of energy uh, and he was a wonderful player to watch. Um, and I'd, I would also like to give a little nod to Rob Lee who was, uh, Still again, won, yeah pivotal part of coming through of the team coming up at this time uh, he did end up captaining us later on before he got messed around by Rude Holt and things like that but Rob Lee came to us when we were in the old first division um, 
and made his way up through the ranks and got in the England squad and went to the World Cup in 1998. So, um, you know, he, he was close second, but uh, I'm going to Peter Beardsley for this one. I heard Peter Beardsley, I think it was Glenn Hoddle last night, um, he compared him to Alexis Sanchez. Which I think Peter Beardsley would be very, from an aesthetic point of view, <laughs> would be very pleased with. But I could kind of see where he's coming from. Could you? Yeah, I, I could. Um, I did hear that and think oh, that's quite that's quite topical. Given I just made me notes, but uh, he, um, I was watching some old uh, old match of the days from this season, actually a few months ago before anybody's been coming on here. And uh, Gary Lineker was a pundit back in those days and he said the one thing you can say about Peter Beardsley is that whoever he plays up front with they score an awful lot of goals mm. and if you look historically it's very true he knew what he was talking about yeah, exactly well he knows better than anyone I've been exactly. playing with England as well um, outside of St James's then your, your favourite player of the 90s um, overall I'm a big fan of um, regular Ronaldo um, I know he wasn't in the Premier League original but, uh, Ronaldo original Ronaldo I won't call him Fat Ronaldo because if I was that good and I was only going to be preferred <laughs> to as fat, fat Ronaldo it's not fair but uh, I did recently buy uh, an Inter Milan shirt from 97-98 with Ronaldo 10 on the back from the UEFA Cup win um, he was just the best wasn't he like, my, whenever you used to draft dream teams at school I always had him and Shearer as a, as a front two uh, and it's a, it's a shame that never actually happened <laughs> Yeah, he's one of those players that yeah, would have been great to see in the Premier League. And you look at his CV as well in that World Cup in 2002 as well. He was El Phenomenon, as they called him. Um, <laughs> but no, good choices, good choices. Well, let's talk 95-96 then. Uh, let's set the scene. We, we left off before we had our little break and we did our sort of uh, bonus episodes that we've done. We did 94-95 with uh, Blackburn winning the league. All change at Old Trafford that summer, of course, Matthew. And, you know, the big... News with the departure of Ince and Hughes and Chelskis, the opening day and the new kids, and we had Alan Hansen. I mean, how did you feel going into that season? Was it like we have to get back on board? Were you sceptical of these kids coming through and the and the the sales that you made? How did the Man United feel going into that season? Yeah, I think like everyone, I was I was pretty sceptical. Obviously, the season prior to this, United had uh just blown the league basically lost the league on the last game of the season at West Ham which I think you discussed um on the on the previous podcast and then Ferguson goes and sells ultimately three of the best te- players in the team um, like you say Paul Ince Andre Kinchelskis um Hughes had signed a new deal and then suddenly found himself leaving the club as well so um but that that happened you know, watching United for years, you did tend to get, especially under Ferguson, you tend to get a lot of players would leave after three or four years' service. But what he tended to do was bring in players to replace them of an equivalent standard, really. But what he didn't do in this season was do that. He he obviously knew, we didn't know at the time, but he obviously knew that he had a, a squad of players that were capable of replacing the, the three that that would uh, would be departing. But it's easy to look back now and, and say that because obviously that summer and the beginning of the season, none of us knew that. And... Uh, that day at Villa Park, that sunny day at Villa Park, particularly that first half, I think everybody's worst nightmare was uh, looked like it was going to be going to come true, and it did. And uh, it's funny, everyone seems to remember that that game at Villa Park, obviously because it was such a big a big deal. But um, but after that, United went on a pretty impressive run of form. I think they were unbeaten in their next ten games. I think they won eight of the next ten, so it was pretty much a blip, really. Um, but uh, yeah, that summer certainly we I think we were all scratching our heads and thinking, yeah, what's happening here? But obviously, Mr. Ferguson knew exactly what he was doing, and he was 
he was proved to be right in the end. He was. We'll, we'll get to that point. Um, on the flip side, uh, David, Newcastle went into that season. Obviously, they spent big money on Les Ferdinand, much to my sadness, coming from QPR with, with a six million transfer. David Ginola came in. He really did build that team. It was kind of the, almost the finished article of the entertainers. We'd seen you guys come up and the flashiness, uh, which is done. How did you remember going into that season? Do you think there was a title bid in potentially in the making? Um, well, it was a bit... A bit strange because the previous season we'd, we'd sold Andy Cole um, and with that had gone, we'd, we'd sort of, I would say plummeted down the league, but we'd gone from in the top three to, I think we finished sixth in the end of the previous season. Um, so obviously Ferdinand came in to, to replace the goals. Um, Ginola came in and just wowed everybody from the minute he arrived. Um, and then on top of that, we also spent quite big on Warren Barton because the defence, well, it's notorious that we didn't really invest a lot of time in the defence because it wasn't the way Keegan played but Warren Barton at the time I think was the most expensive English defender um, so it was certainly a lot of optimism going into the season um, but I don't think anyone would have expected it to be you know, the, how far ahead we got by Christmas and that kind of thing but there was certainly optimism in the air I kind of see it as a season kind of a two halves wasn't it really because like you say well by Christmas, you were, as everybody knows, there's no spoilers alert here. Everyone knows the story, the narrative of this title race. 12 points clear. Um, as you say, you can't really sit fathom how far ahead that was. But at that point, the run that you'd gone on, Ferdinand was scoring goals. Ginola, I remember scoring him such an early goal on against Sheffield Wednesday, was it, if I remember rightly? A really good goal. And he, he became yes. someone, quite a star that season. At that point, did you think, right, we've got this in the bag? I mean, it was hard to say if we, if we had it in the bag or not. I mean, you get so far ahead again to hark back. They say I was watching some old match of the days. Even around January, February, the pundits on there were saying we're knowing Newcastle are going to win the league. So it's just a case of if Man United can put any pressure on at all. So I think there was a feeling that generally no one was going to blow it from that position. But you can't really legislate for the naivety of being in that position for the first time. Um, most of the players there haven't won leagues. Um, and I think that definitely came into it. But when you get so far ahead, you just don't think you're going to blow it. Even now, if someone got 12 points ahead, mm. you wouldn't you wouldn't expect it to be hauled back. No, you wouldn't. But we'll get to, to, to more of the key points. But what, going back a bit, I mean, one of the key points for Man United that season was, of course, the return of Eric Cantona. Um, he'd be banned from the, the Kung Fu kick that we talked about a couple of episodes back. And I always remember, Matthew, he, his comeback. It was a massive, I mean, sky, this was perfect sky viewing, wasn't it? Perfect build. Like, God forbid how much they'd do it today, 10, 20 years later, it'd be even massive, <laughs> wouldn't it? But I remember the packages, you know, typically, and I don't know how they managed this, but it was a game against Liverpool, of all people mm. as well. And he was the one that scored the penalty in the equaliser doing that famous celebration so he ran sort of and rid the uh, the post that holds up the goal didn't he yeah. I mean it goes without saying what a big input him coming back but with that build it really galvanised that team early on when it needed it didn't it it did yeah I mean I'd been at <coughs> Selhurst Park that night uh, the previous season and, and to be honest thought I'd never see him play for United again probably like everyone else that saw it uh, what happened that night but um, yeah when when he came back was it October the 1st or something it was, it was the first yeah, game in October first, wasn't yeah. it it served um, pretty much nine, nine month ban and yeah he came back in a home game against Liverpool and um, like you say he scored the equaliser because Fowler had scored two mm. great goals I think that yeah. day and put Liverpool 2-1 up so Cancer equalised and, and again looking at it that was in a period of that season when United really were dropping points, which which obviously allowed Newcastle to stretch their leagues. I think Newcastle won nine of their first ten or something that, that season, and United were were drawing games like that, which was allowing um, 
Newcastle to get that 12 point lead but yeah Cantona coming back was huge and it just makes you think I know you spoke about this on on the 94-95 podcast but it just makes you think what would have happened had he not been banned the previous Mm. season just from his ability to be able to make things happen and not just the goals but it's just his his influence on the team across the pitch so him coming back in October was pretty much a must really for uh, United to get in gear for for a t- the title challenge that would that would eventually come about, but it didn't come about until well after Christmas when when United played Newcastle. I think it was twenty seventh of December. It was the, the two faced each other when Newcastle had that that huge lead, and it really was a case of a case of uh, United had to win. I mean, Sky would call it a must win game now. Uh, it, it doesn't tend to it didn't tend to happen back then. But United had a pretty poor Christmas. They lost at Leeds. On Christmas Eve, I think the one and only Premier League games to ever be played on Christmas Eve. I remember going there for a eleven o'clock kickoff. They got beaten at Anfield as well. So United were were, were struggling, and, and Newcastle just couldn't seem to do any wrong. So when those when the two teams met on that December twenty seventh evening, it was um, it was a pretty big game, and ultimately a big result for United. Mm, that was, you seg made me nicely there. So that was what I was going to come to next. The first meeting between the two, as you said, was in December. It was a two 0 win for Man United. David was. That the first sign of like right, we need to make sure we're gonna be more consistent. Make sure this is we don't blow this when you lose to what would be the nearest title rivals. Um, yeah, it was it was a blow. I think we'd probably have taken a draw before the game. Um, something that happened that day that probably doesn't get mentioned that much is that uh, Phil Neville paggered Keith Gillespie. I mean, he went right through him and knocked him. I think he had maybe a six-week injury. And uh, we we didn't have the biggest depth in our squad back then, and uh, it really un- imbalanced us for the the next month or so. Uh, I think we had we tried Beasley out on the right, we tried um, Steve Watson out on the right. We weren't really the same team if you look at our results in in January. We weren't steamrolling teams who perhaps we would have done earlier in the season. Um, even like six figure, we played Bolton and Sheffield Wednesday in consecutive home games, and we, we just eked out wins. And that was it was a bit of a strain you can show on the squad around that time. Um, we played. Uh, Chelsea in FA Cup and went to extra time penalties and injuries were starting to mount up so it wasn't so much the results but the the after effects were certainly certainly starting to show and you mentioned the squad this brings me on nicely to what was the next point and probably one of the key points of that season again Keegan went out and wanted to to make the squad stronger big money sign in but the sign in of Festino Espria now (laughs) it's seen as one of those that kind of maybe upset the balance of the squad Possibly, but I mean, he was a big arrival. He was such a big player at the time from Palmer as well. What were your feelings about the sign at the time, and then what would transpire? Um, I remember thinking at the time that we didn't really need him. Yeah. Um, I mean, what we ended up doing was we, we, we played him off Ferdinand. We put Beasley out on the right. Uh, I mean, Keegan just thought Beasley could play anywhere, which I mean, you would happily play anywhere. Um, but. It, it did imbalance the, the squad a little bit, in my opinion, but not to the extent where it would cost you a, a 10-point lead, as it would have been around that mm. sort of time. Um, plus, I mean, let's be fair, Spear was a wonderful player to watch. He uh, he could do things with a ball that hadn't really been seen in the Premier League at that point. Um, he, was, he came on for his debut, and he turned people inside out. I think he'd had a glass of wine beforehand, and he was he, it didn't seem to stop him. It, uh, it was a, a good addition in many ways, but I, I don't think we needed him at that time. What was your feelings, Matt, Matthew, on that? I mean, it was a big sort of say in the title race, wasn't it? A big signature to say, oh, we're really going for it now. Did you fear a Spreer and, and a Newcastle team with more firepower? Yeah, I mean, I, again, like most people, maybe being the natural pessimist that I am, but I was one that just assumed that um, Newcastle losing at Old Trafford that night was a blip and they still had a 
10 point lead or what i think it yeah, was a 12 or 10 point lead but i just assumed that it was a blip and they would go on and um and see other sides and i thought it was another sign another good signing in a, in addition to a an already good team so it wasn't really until and we'll obviously go on to this but it wasn't really until a couple of months later when the wheels really started to fall off with newcastle because obviously united were winning games but newcastle was still winning so the gap was still big so it wasn't for another month or two but before you could really start to see the uh the panic set in as it were so yeah I, I again it's easy to look back in hindsight and say yeah um Asprey, the signing of Asprey upset the uh, the apple cart but it's, it's hard to think that now looking back because he was he was such a good player but I remember when I think when Rodney Marsh went to Manchester City in the 70s they said the same thing about him they said you know had a great team with Bell and and, and everyone there and then Marsh went and he, and he was too much of a flair player he just sort of upset the whole rhythm of the team and, and from what I've heard that's what happened with Asprey but of course at the time, you didn't know it. You just thought, well, he's a he's a great player. He can only he can only add to a, an already good team that's pretty much going to go on and win the league. So we thought. Yeah. Rodney Marsh, another one that should have stayed at Loftus Road, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. The, I think the wheels began to to come off for of Newcastle. You look at the fourth of March, nineteen ninety six, and that was when May United beat Newcastle again. Again, Eric Cantona goal. Yeah. David, was that the the panic started to stretch in because then the, the tight rivals done the double over you. You started to drop points. United were coming into that phase that they always do. Second half of the season was that time to think, right. Okay. We need, we really need to be on more on the ball here. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a harrowing note. I mean, we, um, dominated the first half. Um, Peter Schmeichel single-handedly kept Man United uh, on terms. Uh, I think Philip Albert hit the bar with a free kick, everything else from Les Ferdinand and Schmeichel plucked out of the various, corners of the goal um, and I remember Andy Gray said on the night if Newcastle don't score in the first 20 minutes it, they're going to be in trouble here and uh, it, sure enough as the night went on Man United grew into the game Cannon now scored just after half time and then we couldn't really muster much of a response um, I think what was more galling was just a few days later Man United went to QPR QPR were winning 1-0 and oh. I'm sure you'll remember this Ash but before the days of the fourth official holding up a board Man United just played until they scored and uh, sure enough in about the 97th minute I think it was Cantona equalised and uh, that you know had they not equalised you know we would still have been you know it wouldn't have been as much of a disaster really um, that was uh, yeah it's a game that's still talked about amongst the, the QPR fans and there's still a sort of being our bonnet about the time added on and that was Cantona as well if I remember who got the equaliser so yeah I, I agree with Dave well I mean Man United scored four goals in March they won three games 1-0 and they got one 97 and equaliser and Eric Cantona got every single one of the goals mm-hmm. there's only one man who won them that title yeah it's a good stat I've got that written down here as well you stole it off me but no it's a great stat <laughs> and, uh, yeah it, it says why Cantona was football writers player of the year as well um, it was that game of course and now I've got to talk about TM, the greatest Premier League game of all time. I think it's the only Premier League game that has its own Wikipedia page as well. It's <laughs> what Sky call, you know, they still wax lyrical about Liverpool, Newcastle on the 3rd of April 1996. We've talked about it a long time ago in our Matches of the Decade pod. It's usually one that comes up when I ask guests as well, their Match of the, of the Decade. It is one of those that has everything. If you're a neutral, it's fantastic. But David, heartbreak, that image of Keegan slumped yeah. over the, the uh, advertising board. Not a nice night to be a Newcastle fan, I reckon. No, you'd be, you'd be spot on with that. It was, um, I mean, it was a wonderful game of football. Um, the first half, in particular, was just it was like playground stuff. It was unbelievable, end to end. I think it was three goals in the opening fifteen minutes. Um, and even when we went, 
must have been three two up. There was still less. There was still just under an hour played, and it'd be three two after under an hour in a game of that, that magnitude. He's looking at your watch, thinking, I, "I wish we were twenty minutes further in the future." Here. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, it, it unravelled. But uh, that was a definitely a pivotal night. Uh, had we even held on for a draw there, it wouldn't have been the worst result. But to lose in that manner was a proverbial punch in the stomach, and uh, it certainly had an effect over the next few games. And Matthew, was you the, the happy Man United fan watching from afar, taking in that? Well, it must have been hard for you because as a you know, Man United fan, Liverpool aren't your favourite team, but you needed them to win. Yeah, I was, it's funny thinking about it that night. I was almost in a... My first reaction was I wanted Liverpool to lose. But but then after a few minutes, I thought, hang on a minute, no, of course, you know, you want you, you want Liverpool to win this game as much as... Um, much as that happens very rarely, but um, it was it was one of those occasions where you almost thought, well, I can't really lose here, whatever happens. But I think that game was a real microcosm of, of Newcastle's season that season. You know, it, if you were going to sum up that season in 90 minutes, it would be that game. You know, brilliant, devastating going forward, but just you just always knew they had a goal. They were going to concede a goal, possibly two. And and again, a draw that night probably wouldn't have been that bad. And they could have they could have probably could have got out there with a draw if they had been a bit more savvy. But to lose it like the way they did. I mean, Ferguson watching that night and anyone else must have just thought, well, we've got this in the bag. I mean, we didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't think that at the time, but but looking back to see how a team can can uh, throw throw that game away in that position, it, um, you know, it's not good, but uh, it but a fantastic game and a game. I think Asprey actually scored one of my favourite goals that season in that game, the one where he went through and he, yeah. he sort of Loved spun it, it past yeah. David Jay and, it, and it, the way it's, there was some backspin as it rolled into the net. I just thought it was a fantastic, brilliant mm-hmm. finish. Um it's great to be able to watch it back now because obviously all these years on, you know that it, 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 you can enjoy it for what it is. But at the time, <laughs> at the time, it doesn't really, uh, it didn't really register. But what, yeah, it, say it just, it just summed up the way Newcastle played that game. You know, they always used to say, oh, if, if the opposition scores three, we'll score yeah. four. But quite, quite often it happened the other way around, or a couple of times it happened the other way around, and that, that's what proved to be costly when, when United were winning games one <clears> 0 <throat> and being devastating, if not hugely entertaining. That's what you need to do to win leagues, isn't it? Yeah, see, it's 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 uh, quite often said, as you just said, uh, Newcastle's defence cost in the league. We only conceded two more goals than Man United. Um, yes, yeah, it, I, it, I, it, it's, I, it's one of those where, as you say, when it came downward, you could win one nil towards the end when it was getting a bit nervy, uh, whereas we couldn't keep a clean sheet towards the end of the season at all. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting stat. Uh, Newcastle conceded one more than United and scored one fewer than the season before, apparently. So. That's incredible because you would think if anyone, if you didn't look it up, you'd think, oh yeah, Newcastle must have scored, you know, 150 goals that season and left in <laughs> 100, but they didn't. It was actually qu- quite similar to to the pattern. I think the se- two seasons before they'd actually scored a lot more when Cole was banging banging them in for fun. Yes. But uh, yeah. it's a bit of a myth. But you know, don't let that get in the way of a great story, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they were the neutrals' favourite. I absolutely enjoyed watching them. Loved watching Ferdinand, of course, despite the fact he was wearing stripes and not hoops. And, and Ginola was one of my, my favourite players of the era. But we can't move on now and talk about that season without talking probably the most famous post-match interview there's ever been, regardless of what era you're talking about. The moment that the mind games really got to Kevin Keegan after beating uh, Leeds on the 30th of April 1996 uh, in, in a televised outburst accusing Man United manager of trying to vote, provoke him and accusing the Leeds players of not giving as much as they would. He, he said, I'd love it, of course. I'd love it if we beat them to the title. And he, the passion showed on Keegan's face, which for many, and, and me included, I liked seeing that side of him, but possibly yeah, I agree. It, it showed what you shouldn't be doing as a manager. You should be more like a Fergie. Take it all in. But 
the different types of manager and Keegan was certainly someone that wore his heart on his sleeve. David, what did you think of that moment? Did you think it's, yes, my manager showing his passion or did you think, okay, he's starting to lose the plot slightly here? I think uh, everybody of a Newcastle persuasion was just fed up with Alex Ferguson. I say that the... Then the 97th minute to equalise and things like that. I mean, you know what football fans are like. We we start to think, oh, there's a conspiracy and all this kind of thing. Obviously, you don't really believe it, but it's it's just one of those things you say to make yourself feel better. But I remember thinking at the time, everyone in our living room was, go on, Kevin, because he was, you know, he was he was saying what we're all thinking. Um, but it shouldn't really be coming from the manager. Um, I think Keegan's actually spoke about it since, and he said he, he didn't realise how loud he was because he had those big Sky headphones on, um, and he just sort of carried away and, you know. Said it, said what he was thinking. Um, it was definitely a sign that Ferguson had won. I know he said we were still fighting for this title, but by all, for all intents and purposes, by then the stuff had been knocked out of us, and I think the writing was on the wall. Mm-hmm. Matthew, do you think that it was as David said, the moment Ferguson he, he'd won and May United had really put a foothold in that championship? Yeah, I mean, I, I like you. I looking back on it now, I think it's great. I'd love to have seen more managers yeah. be like that, but I suppose, I suppose you can't. Like you said, a manager shouldn't be shouldn't be saying that. It, it actually all stemmed from because I think about ten fifteen days before that game, United had Leeds at Old Trafford. Yeah. I was there that night, and um, we'd absolutely battered them, but uh, couldn't. You know, Leeds were putting up a huge fight. They had the keeper sent off. I think it was it Mark Beanie was sent off. Uh, he uh, handled the ball outside the box, so Marcus Radaby had to go in goal because in the days before the substitute keeper so he went in goal and kept United out it looked like United were going to drop it was one of those nights where they threw the kitchen sink at Leeds and uh, Keane scored with about 10 minutes to go and United won 1-0 and I think Ferguson was basically making the point that Leeds were trying everything to stop United win the league and would they put up as much fight when they played Newcastle a few a few days later and I think it was 1-0 didn't, didn't Newcastle yeah, win 1-0 so, yeah. yeah, so, so it's quite a tight game so Keegan was obviously saying look you know you said Le- Leeds would come here and get rolled over and you were wrong so you could see where he was coming from but uh, yeah, I suppose in hindsight he shouldn't have done it but I, I look at that with affection and think you know if I ever met the guy I'd say well fair play to you for doing that really but I think it was it, it was out of their hands by then really wasn't it um, maybe not literally but it did seem like the uh, momentum had shifted by then it did, and we know what happened in the end. Maynard had won the league with a 3-0 win at Middlesbrough on the final day. I mean, David, was that, for you, still such a massive opportunity missed? Yeah, I mean, the, the night we really thought we'd lost it, well, we, well, we knew we'd lost it, but away at Blackburn. Graham uh, Fenton, April, yeah. April 8th, Geordie Ladd, Graham Fenton comes off the bench, scores twice, um, and you've just got your head in your hands. You're thinking, how, how is this allowed to happen? Um Considering they had Shearer up front as well, so you think, well, if Shearer scores, that's a nightmare. But um, when it's some youngster coming off the bench from Whitley Bay, scoring twice to fall in terms of purposes, knock you off the top of the league, um, it's not it's not nice. <laughs> um, and then to go to Notts Forest just after that Leeds game and concede a late goal to Ian Warren, who always scored against us, that was... That was that was the final straw, really. I mean, if we'd won that, we'd have gone in the last game of the season uh, level on points, I think, and it would have would have been interesting. As you said before, Sky would have gone over the, over the moon yeah, with, with something like that. that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, we, we couldn't get the job done and uh, it petered out from there. Final word on this then, Matthew, because we'll, we'll try and talk about some other things because this, this season was so dominated by this title race and Keegan and Ferguson and stuff. But for you... Do you think the better team in terms of the whole season and the consistency the Maynard shown, edging away, chipping away at Newcastle, won the league in the end? 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a cliche to say the best team will yeah. always win the league, but I think, I think this was a, a case of two teams facing each other that were at very different stages. I mean, United had blown the league on numerous occasions in the past, you know, famously in 91-92, and they'd had their moments in the 80s where it looked like they were going to win the league over 10 points clear in 85-86. Sorry to... Not, but not the nineties. Yeah. But, they, but they were um, <laughs> they were they were serial chokers, really. United in the, much of the seventies, eighties, and early parts of the nineties. So I think what happened to Newcastle was almost what had happened to United in previous years. And, and United obviously had taken that experience. They'd won it ninety two, ninety three. Won it ninety three, ninety four. They'd blown it ninety four, ninety five. So they, it's another overused expression. But they know they knew how to win the league, and I think that's exactly what happened that season. They were. They were nowhere near winning the league come Christmas, but they just thought, Ferguson must have said to them, look, if we put a run of games together here, if we win five, six, seven, eight, ten games in a row, we can be right up there. And that's exactly what happened. They're up there and then they knew that they got themselves in that position, which they'd done so many times, Newcastle would possibly choke. And obviously not Newcastle not having that experience um, was what cost them in the end. They, they didn't do the 1-0 wins that, that United were. They were throwing away games when they really you know the Forest game like you say they, they should have won that the, the Blackburn game all those games if they just said right we, we won't lose these or we, we've set out for a 1-0 they would have won the league but obviously that's just they just weren't set out to do that so I think that's what it, what it comes down to I mean two great great teams just one was obviously designed to, to win the league and another was was sort of having a go maybe I don't, don't mean that to sound respect, uh, disrespectful but I just think maybe the belief wasn't there with Newcastle yeah, exactly. I think you summed it up nicely there. And then somebody who was at the club is our guest today on today's show. Um, he was he was sold actually halfway through the season, but he was there at the beginning of the season, part of that Newcastle squad. He went on to play for Bolton later in the season, also played for Blackburn and Leeds during the era, as well as finishing off at Huddersfield Town. Uh, speaking to me earlier this week, it's uh, former midfielder Scott Sellers. Joining me on the line then, former Blackburn, Leeds, Newcastle and Bolton midfielder Scott Sellers. Welcome to Alive and Kicking. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. We're taking you back to the 90s. And uh, you're a Leeds lad. You were there, first of all, but at the beginning of the decade, you were at Blackburn. Um, you were there yeah. when, when Kenny came in and Jack Walker, the, the, that whole thing started to take shape. What was it like uh, at the time to be at Ewood Park? Yeah, I mean, it was exciting times. Um, I mean, Blackburn at, at that point weren't sort of spending the money that sort of happened when Jack came in. Um, spent a lot, on, a lot of money very quickly on players and uh, the team improved quickly and we moved up the table and... Uh, uh, and we're lucky enough in our first season together, we got promotion. You did, yeah. But promotion, that's always a, 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 a career highlight. How was that for you? Well, it's great to be fair because I've been at Blackburn for a few years and we'd sort of been around the playoffs, to, got to the playoff final once against Palace and lost. So it was sort of something we were always searching for and trying to get to. Uh, and then at last point, obviously, uh, it was actually my last game for Blackburn was, was a, a playoff winning game at, Leicester, at Wembley against Leicester. So, yeah, it was... Uh, it's fantastic to achieve something with them. We actually talked about playoffs on, on our last show of that decade and mentioned that game. And when you win it, do you still think it's possibly the best way to go up to win that one game at Wembley? Yeah, I think it, it's sort of very contrasting. If you have, have won at Wembley and lost at Wembley in, in finals, and uh, yeah, the emotions can be very separate and very different. Um, winning, at, yeah, probably is, is better than winning the league. Um, Stress-wise, I think it's a lot easier to win the league and get promotion. Uh, but yeah, the emotion after winning at Wembley to get promotion to the Premier League at that point obviously was uh, was fantastic. You didn't, as you said, you, you left Blackburn after that. Was that a case of your hometown club, who were champions at the time, of course, let's not forget, 
just calling and, and the, the law of going back to Leeds, was that too much you could to turn down? Yeah, I mean, I started there as a kid. Uh, I'm, I'm a Sheffield lad, not a Leeds lad, but I started there and uh, obviously had a massive affection for the place. Um, probably a bad decision that I felt I had some unfinished business. I'd uh, been let go as a 20-year-old. Uh, I was part of a, a really good crop of young players that all went on to good things that we sort of got rid of. Um, and yeah, I felt it was unfinished business. I wanted to go and prove that, uh, that I could, uh, could do it at Leeds. And obviously, they just won the league as well. So to go and play in the Champions League was, was obviously a big pull as well. What happened to Leeds that season? Because obviously we know that they won the league in the last of the old first division. They didn't quite find the same form the following season. And, and I know you struggled with injury a lot during that campaign. But for you being in the club, what didn't they? Be, what wasn't they able to re, recapture from the season before? I, I think that the uh, the back pass really made a big difference in terms of um, you know I thought at the time that obviously uh, big yeah big Lee Chapman and, and Gary Speed and all that were good in the air and they played a lot of their football in sort of the opposition half, and I think that um, having not been able to do that as quick, you know, as, as sort of calculated as, as they did with when with Big John's kicks, I think it just changed the game a little bit. And uh, I think that with the Premier League as well, as a little bit more money came into it, and I thought a few more clubs start to spend some money, so I thought the league became a bit more competitive as well. You did indeed. And your time, as I said, was was kind of ruined by injury. Was that really the reason it just didn't work quite work out? At least that you moved on to Newcastle. I think that um, I think that obviously the midfield at that time was very good. Uh, obviously Gary Gary Speed, Gary McAllister, Gordon Strachan, Dave Batty, uh, Steve Hodge was in that group, and David Rowcastle. So you know we had a really strong midfield. I think they had, had one or two other positions uh, to try and fill. I wasn't playing really, and uh, as anybody know, when, when I'm not playing, I'm not sort of the, the happiest person. So I, mm. I just love playing. Uh, so the opportunity came to come to New, to go to Newcastle. They were doing really well. Obviously Kevin Keegan was manager. Uh, it's a great, you know, obviously a massive club as well who seem to be moving forward. So it was a sort of an opportunity I couldn't turn down. Mm. Yeah, you, you say moving forward. It's a bit like, you know, when you left Blackburn, we were really in transition to Newcastle at that time. Keegan had come in and the entertainers were starting to take shape. How exciting yeah. was it to play in a team under Kevin Keegan? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in terms of, you know, a long career, but in terms of enjoyment, uh, it was probably the team I enjoyed the most playing in. The style of football, like you said, the entertainers, uh, you know, our attitude was to just go and try and score, whether we're at home or away, um, whether we're winning or losing. We had a sort of very clear attitude what we're trying to do. Uh, some really good players in the group as well. So, yeah, it was an exciting time. And obviously the fans up in Newcastle, when things are going well, I don't think there's anybody better. And what was Kevin like to play? And obviously quite the contrast, I imagine, to, to Howard Wilkinson at Leeds. And I mean, we know Kevin's a great man management. Did you find that? Yeah, I think that Kevin um fantastic instilling a lot of confidence in you, uh, giving you a lot of freedom to play and, and express yourself. Uh, I think ultimately he knows what he wants and he recruits players for what he wanted really well. Uh, and I think, like I say, yeah, really uh, a good guy to work for, uh, always enthusiastic, uh, always loved his football, very passionate about Newcastle from obviously his own experiences there. And I think his father was from that area as well. So, uh, yeah, it was a he was a great man to work for. Mm. You left just midway through the season, the famous season where he had that meltdown. I mean, what what made you? Was it again the, the first for, for first team football in such a, a big squad that they had at the time? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd sort of been injured the year before with my knee and been out quite a while. And in that time, come pre-season, I was fit. But then uh, David Ginola came in, who was playing the same position as me, and he was unbelievable. To be fair, uh, I just uh, I was desperate, uh, and I just sort of watched him and enjoyed play watching him play. To be fair. So I just got to a stage where, again, uh, as I said in my earlier bit, you know, I just love playing uh, and been out for sort of seven, eight months without playing, then coming back and watching. 
uh, was obviously a frustrating period for me. Um, you know, I could have stayed around and um, Kevin wanted me to stay um, because obviously they were doing really well in the league and wanted to keep the squad strong, but he obviously understood me and what I was about and how much I wanted to play. Um, so, yeah, it was obviously a very, really tough decision to do, but, um, you know, I didn't want to look back in sort of when I retired and think mm. about, you know, two years missed playing football. So you at the club when Festino Espria was signed. Was, is it true that he that signing up, upset the balance of that team going into that championship race? Well, I don't know because he sort of came just after me. He actually mm. took my number. So uh, I never got actually see the sort of time with Festino. So I, I wouldn't really know. Um, I think ultimately, um, you know, there were, you know, I think 12 points clear when I left. But, yeah. you know, Man United were a great team at that time. And, weren't going to let give up the uh, chance to win the title. Mm. I say it was, you should have stayed. They needed you. You're 12 points clear. Um, so what? what <laughs> I always Bolton... tell them that every time I listen to them, actually. <laughs> so why Bolton then? Were they the only club in for you? What made you choose to, to move on to, to Bolton at the time? Yeah, I mean, Bolton were in the Premier League, although I'd just been promoted and were, were struggling a little bit. You know, they sort of made a sort of big pull to try and get me to come there. Um, and like I said, the, the big thing for me is, is that I wanted to play. You know, I needed to get back playing. I needed to get back what I felt match fit. I did play a few games for Newcastle at that time, but I just never felt I was quite right because I was still catching up. Uh, and it was important for me to try and uh, play and help Bolton as much as I could to try and, uh, you know, they're in relegation problem at the time and try and get them, help them get them away from it. You, again, you were at the club as Bolton became sort of established in that league because you played in the Premier League then for over 100 times. So did you see yeah. the club change while you were there as well under Big Sam? Yeah, I mean, when I went there, it was obviously Burnham Park. And then when I left a few years later, it was the Reebok Stadium. So, you know, the club developed a lot. Um, you know, there's sort of a massive infrastructure change and, and a lot of money put into the club to, to make it move forward. And uh, yeah, I had a really good time at Bolton. I enjoyed it a lot. Mm. And you finished the 90s at Huddersfield. I mean, just qu- a quick word on them in, in the more modern day. It'll be... Uh, um, disappointed that they this in the season they had, but at the end it was a bit disappointing, wasn't it? Is that for sorry? Huddersfield, one of your old clubs, nearly made the Premier League. I mean, you, you had a spell there. How did you find them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, at the time I went there, Steve Bruce was manager, and sort of again they seemed to be spending a little bit of money to try and get them up. Um, we were up around the promotion playoff positions most of the season, and then just sort of fell away at the end. Um, yeah, it was frustrating to be fair because we had some good players there and. I think probably the, the, sort of the I think they saw Marcus Stewart towards the end of the season, and that mm. sort of said to us really well. I don't, I'm not sure the club do want to go up at, the, at this moment in time. Mm. We always ask this when we get players on. I mean, who for you of that decade was the best player you played with, and, and the best you played against? Uh, best player I played with was Peter Beardsley. Mm. Um, you know, I thought he was fun, really talented, hard working, could win a game for you on his own, could do would do things that, that would make you go you know, would make you gasp uh, in training, in matches. I thought he was fantastic. Um, probably uh, didn't play against him a lot in the 90s, but I'd seen him sort of because he'd sort of departed. But probably my favourite player was probably Gaza around that era as well. Um, was probably a really special player. Uh, could do anything, really. Could mm. could run, could play, could go past people, could score. Uh, and I thought Gaza was probably the sort of the best player I saw around that generation. Um and then sort of some of some of the foreign players came in. I enjoyed watching. Thought Hullet was a top top player when I played against him. Really showed his his ability. And then, like I say, yeah, probably uh, 
David Ginola when he came into Newcastle as well was uh, exceptionally talented as well. Mm, some big names there. And these days you're still at Wolves, I believe. Is that where, yeah. where you are now coaching? Yeah, still doing the 23s, yeah. And how is it things there? Look, obviously, the championships are a very difficult decision. Uh, decision the league is. So, um, how are you fi- how are you finding it, Wolves? And how do you think they'll do next season? Yeah, well, I'm working with the 23, so um, obviously I don't get involved in the first team, but obviously watch the games. Yeah, it's a tough league. I think um, this year as well proved it. You know, uh, Newcastle spent a lot of money and found it tough to get out of. Uh, some teams have come down and struggled. So, I think it'll always be a very individual league. It's, it can be very physical at times. I still think you can play football in the league, so you've got to have a bit of both, really. You've got to be able to match the physicality of the league, and but you've also got to be able to play as well. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll, uh, if I'm honest, we'll probably have a dis- disappointing year, so I think this summer will be an important one in terms of the money spend and who we recruit. Definitely, I think there'll be a few clubs. Well, thank you very much for your time, Scott. It's been great talking to you, looking back at the 90s with you. Cheers, Ash. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you. Cheers, cheers, nice work there from Scott. Good to chat to him um, and his memories of the decade. Um, we're just going to go through a few more things from the 95-96 season. Obviously, it did, as I said, it was dominated by this title race. So in and around it, there wasn't a lot of other major talking points. We will talk a little bit about Euro 96 as well just before we go. But one, one thing I wanted to say about this season, it really seemed about where the Premier League laid a marker down in terms of talent. You look at the names that were signed this season. David Platt, Ginola, who we've mentioned, Tony Oboa, who scored those two amazing goals and the Leeds fans still love. Uh, Janino, Thomas Brolin, Espria. Guys, I'll, I'll come to you, Matthew Thurst. Do you think this was the season? Dennis Burkham, of course. How could I forget him? We, you know, The Premier League started to establish itself as this juggernaut that we wouldn't know going forward. Yeah, definitely. Because I remember we did the... I was involved in the first couple of shows that we look back at the, the 90s and and we said when the Premier League came along in 92, 93, as much as it came along with all its bells and whistles and, and the sky and everything, not a lot really had changed apart from kits and the branding and everything. The players were still the same players. The crowd were pretty much the same crowd. The pitches, were, the stadiums were still the same stadiums, that kind of thing. So it was only really this season that that whole new era, I think, really kicked in. I think it took a few years to bed down and obviously... Players from around the continent were starting to take notice of the interest there was there, the um, the money, the, the the television exposure. So it must have taken them two, three, four years to really realise that this was the big deal, a proper uh, big deal. And um, then we started to see this huge influx of players that would pretty much hasn't ended to this day. Really, it's it's it, it set the uh, they built a, a path really for for others to follow which they did in their in their droves probably for the better um but certainly this season i think you would say was the, the year you you could look at this season and look at the current premier league season and, and you'd start to say yeah that's there's not a lot of difference there whereas if you go back to say 92 93 you'd probably think wow that does look really different you know Mm. David, of the, those players, and Rud Hullett was another one I forgot to mention as well. I mean, who did you most admire coming to the Premier League? I remember myself being really excited about Dennis Burkamp coming in. I didn't know much about Janinho, but grew to love him. Who did you love watching during this season? Um, well, Hullett came with probably the biggest reputation. I think yeah. he was, was was he run up to Canton on Football of the Year in the end this year? I think he was, yeah. yeah. He was yeah. in the team of the season, which we'll go through. But yeah, I think he was. Yeah, I mean, he just the style he played with. He came in as a sweeper and sort of moved himself into midfield. Um, it, it, it was there wasn't many players like Ruud Hullet, and it probably never will be again. Um, it's sort of a position that no one plays anymore. Um, so it was it was good to see someone of his calibre coming in. It's just a shame 
he was a terrible manager for us <laughs> later in life. Yes, we'll talk about that in a few episodes' time. Um, someone I wanted to mention, a Geordie as well, who made a big transfer that summer as well, was Paul Gascoigne, who joined Rangers. I mean, at the time, probably a few eyebrows raised, but the Scottish League was much stronger than it is today. And that team, with Brian Loudrap as well, um, was a fantastic team. David, do you, do you think that was possibly some of the best of Gaza we ever saw and maybe slightly wasted in the Scottish League? Yeah, possibly. He'd um, he'd certainly seemed to have matured while he'd been over in Serie A, um, and by the time he went to Rangers, he was you know he was a, a more complete player, I think, than uh, the sort of young exuberant player who came through in the in the early nineties. Um, so yes, I think it would have been nice to see him in the Premier League. I think the story goes that Alex Ferguson wanted to sign mm. him, um, but but didn't for various reasons. But no, it would have been nice to see him in the, in the Premier League. Mm. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think the move did Gaza well. It did well for him as well, personally, didn't it? I think yeah. he was starting to maybe struggle at the. And I've, I've heard a great interview with Walter Smith a while ago that he said that he was on holiday in Florida with his kids, with his family and kids, and he see he saw Gaza in the lobby of the hotel, and they got chatting, and and the kids were obviously made up because Gaza was huge back then, and they got chatting in the in the lobby, and, and Walter Smith said, "Would you ever consider coming to play for Rangers?" And Gaza said, "Yeah, yeah, I would, I would." And he said, "Are you sure?" And he said, "Yeah, I would." And they went off and thought nothing more about it. Smith went back to Ranger, said to the chairman, you know, um, Gaza said he'd come and, and he said, well, you know, go and go and get it done. And Walter Smith got on a plane, went to Gaza's house, knocked on the door. Gaza was there. And he said, do you remember saying in Florida that you'd come and play for us? And Gaza said, yeah, I meant it. And they did the deal there and then. He was good <laughs> to his word. So, you know, I think Gaza just wanted a new challenge. And, and maybe Scottish football was slightly more competitive than it was then as it is now. And the Rangers were obviously a huge club. He knew he was going to get a huge amount of fan adulation so it probably it probably worked well for Gaza then I think yeah it did it seems looking back it seems now like the perfect fit but I remember at the time really wishing he'd played in the Premier League one of the other big transfer news of that season we won't go too into this maybe because it affected the next decade more than really in the 90s because it was still a new thing but Jean-Marc Bosman the Bosman ruling was created after the Belgian wanted to leave his contract of his own accord and this new rule was created that we'll see that's become common day common day in, in, in common football so yeah that that happened this season um, the David Boost injury happened in 95-96 which was one of the most yeah. frightful things you'll ever see on a football pitch. Go back and to listen to our interview with David uh, last season in the archives where we spoke to him about that injury. Um, just going through, what's really interesting, just slightly going back to the title race, if you look at the team of the season that year that was named by the PFA, can you guess the one Man United player that was there? Only one. Can you guess who it was, Matthew? In the season, one United player in that team of the season? Yeah. What do you, I mean, I don't know. I mean, off the top of my head, I'd say it'd have to be Schmeichel or Cantor. Gary Neville. <laughs> really? Yeah. This was the PFA team really? of the season. David James, who was at Liverpool, Neville, Adams, really? Ekiog, Wright, and then in midfield, Steve Stone, one of my favourite players of the year randomly. Rob Lee, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Ruth Hullett, who we mentioned earlier, David Ginola, and then Ferdinand and Shearer up front, who would obviously play together at Newcastle the following season, which is kind of an interesting team, seeing as Man United won the league and there's only one it is, player. And it's a very, it's a very English based team as well, isn't it? If you look at those names, mm. there's only two or three international players. Hullett and Ginola, yeah. Yeah. Presumably back in those days they still did the vote around Christmas yeah. with, like they do now yeah. which I guess would have yeah. quite an effect on us given how it went after Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tradition that they haven't got they haven't got email anymore I suppose they haven't invented that yet have they even in modern <laughs> days isn't it? it's ridiculous that they vote so early. Um, the only other things I mean, we like to tie up here as we said Les Ferdinand was the PFA Player of the Year Robbie Fellow the Young Player of the Year Cantona as we said one of the football writers Alan Shearer was top scorer with 31 goals and then we know what happened that summer we'll talk about that on the next show. Um, QPR were relegated we'll move on very quickly from 
from that. Um, Bolton and Manchester City. It was a terrible season for Rangers with Rain Wilkins, Ned Zellick, all that. We all know Rangers fans. Um, and then we led into the summer, which of course was Euro 96. Now we have done two shows on Euro 96, so please go back into the archive and listen to them. But we'll just, these guys weren't on those shows. So it's always nice to remember that magical summer, as we always call it. Coming to you first, David, what are your favourite memories from Euro 96? And that just, for those who lived it, it was such a special time, wasn't it? Oh yeah, um, I mean to be honest, I was I, I would have just turned eight, so you can imagine how I don't know why. I still, <laughs> oh, you're I don't know why I still, a little bit old now. I don't know why I still like football, given that we've just gone through this title malarkey and then penalties defeated Euro '96. So I mean, I, I was on to a, a losing start really in, in football, but no, it was it was a great tournament. Um, I remember it pretty well, even though it was so long ago. I mean, um, everyone everyone remembers a home tournament. I think um, yeah. the night against Holland. Was, was just the best football I've seen England play probably ever since. I don't think they'll don't, don't top that night, maybe that night in Germany, I suppose. But um, the, the fact the whole country was talking about this one tournament as well, I mean, that happens to a degree at every tournament, but literally the whole country was uh, was engrossed in, in Euro 96. And I, I don't think that'll happen again for a long time. Mm. Matthew, your memories of, of Euro 96, I mean, it's, I, I can't wax lyrical enough about how weirdly brilliant that summer was in it wasn't just yeah. the, it was the music it was the politics it was yeah. it just all came together wasn't it that summer well that's what comes to mind david's saying there about um, the whole country being engrossed and that's how i remember it. i remember from about the end of that season uh, obviously till the start of the, the tournament the whole country was gripped and everywhere you went people were talking about it and I remember it being in different i was about 18 that year i remember being in different cities on various you know going to see people at university or what have you and and it was getting to the stage where people were saying, oh, you know, there's 10,000 Dutch people staying in Reading because they're playing at Wembley. And then um, in Liverpool, they extended the licensing hours because the Italian team were playing here. So obviously there were a lot of Italians in town. It just seemed to change. Everyone was fascinated by this sort of influx of, again, it's probably now you, you don't think about it at all now because of the amount of foreign players and foreign teams. But then it was, it was almost a fever that swept the country more culturally than, than about the, the game itself. But, um, and, and people say 1990 really changed football and Gaza and all that. I think it was probably 96 because it went hand in hand with the whole sky thing and the Premier League. It, it really, I think more so than 1990, but um, yeah, obviously the tournament was, was huge. I just seem to remember how much it affected each individual town and different places I was going mm. at the time. Everyone was talking about, oh, so and so, we're going there because so and so are playing there, and we're going up to Newcastle because you know, obviously, all these these big cities had a, a a team based there. So it just seemed to it just seemed to fit perfectly, and one of probably one of my greatest summers. You know, yeah. like I say, the music, the the, the lightning seeds, and it, you had the Britpop era then as well. So Spice Girls. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, go back and listen to those two pods because we do go on and on about your United Six. And also, if you have never seen a film called My Summer with Des which is with Neil Morrissey, which is about Euro 96. Go on YouTube and watch it. It sums up that era absolutely brilliantly. One of my favourite random 90s TV shows. Um, before we go on to our players that time forgot, I hope you've got them. I know we've re-recorded this, so I hope you still remember that, guys. If not, we can. it's fine. Um, is there anything else we haven't mentioned from 95, 96? Uh, coming to you first, David, that you wanted to just give a little mention to. Um, I've got a couple of Kevin Keegan anecdotes, which I'll keep oh, brief. Um, go for it. Uh Favourite memory of mine, uh, we played Liverpool away in the, what was the Coca-Cola Cup back then. Um, back then, you could only have, I think it was two subs on the bench, so we didn't use the name of subkeeper. We used to have Steve Watson to cover every position. <laughs> the um, ultimate utility man. Exactly. So, Shaka Hislop goes down with an injury, and 
the thumbs up doesn't come from the physio, so Keegan says to Watson, go and, go and warm up. So off he goes. Um, whilst he's doing his warm-up, Les Ferdinand gets a bang on the head. He's concussed. He has to come off. So Watson goes on up front. Um, it's at Anfield. He gets the ball just, just inside uh, Liverpool half. He sort of meanders forward. He's got four defenders around him. He's got nothing left to do. So he, on his Wigan left foot, he chips the ball over David James in 25 yards and we go through 1-0. Um, there's only a Kevin Keegan team could have Steve Watson score a chip from 25 yards. Brilliant. That's um, good. And the other one... And, um, same competition actually the next round we played Arsenal away um, th- these games were both on ITV when ITV used to have the this cup um, it was a night where Lee Dixon and Winterburn just kicked David Ginola until he responded and got sent off um, it was back back in the days where Arsenal were allowed to do that um, so we got we, we ended up losing 2-0 I think Ian Wright scored at least one of the goals probably two uh, after the match Keegan's in the tunnel and ITV catch up with them they say um Kevin, what do you think about that? What do you think about the, the way David Ginola was, was treated by the Arsenal players? And as he was responding, he said, got no complaints. Arsenal were the better team on the night. You want to talk to this man? And Ian Wright was walking past. He put his arm around Ian Wright and he said, here's your man of the match. Speak to Ian Wright. And I just thought that was a really classy thing to do. Yeah. Um, and it really summed up Keegan as, as a man and his man management skills. Yeah, he did. Yeah, great stuff from Keegan. The Coca-Cola Cup, also, that was the season Man United went out to York, wasn't it, I believe, Matthew? But is there... <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah. Anything else um, from 95-96? Yeah, well, this was the season that the famous defeat away at Southampton, was it not? Oh, the um, yes, it 3-0 was, down yeah. at hard time, the grey shirts, and then Ferguson got the players to change the kit and United came out and won the second half 1-0, I think, didn't they? But one of the few blips on that run-in for United, really, that season, because obviously, as we said, United were absolutely flying. So that was a... I think that was around about April, wasn't it, that season? So probably one of the few defeats after Christmas for United. Um, well, so I was going to mention if, that. If leaks are to believe, the, the new May United third kit that's meant to be coming this season, not made official yet, but I've seen a few leaks, that's meant to be grey. So it must be the first grey wow. kit they've had since that season. Yeah, well, get yeah. don't expect to uh, see it. If you had to get beaten in that, <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't expect to see that again. Because yeah. the thing is, the clubs clubs change their kit every season now, don't they? Because there did. was a big deal when that when that happened. Everyone said, "Oh, that kit was never seen again." But the, this these days, that wouldn't be a big deal because nah. they change their kits anyway. So um, I suppose they can give it a try for a year. But um, and the other thing I was going to mention is, I've been on this podcast what three, four, five times now. I think we've always we've mentioned this on every one apart from this season, and it's the. White suits, the 96 oh, of course, Cup the Cup final. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I so, bring that down. Because we did a Cup final episode a couple of weeks ago that I kind of didn't um, write down again. But yes, of course, the FA Cup final. We've completely missed that. But yeah, Liverpool. And I've still not thought of anything to say about that Cup final. Every time we've discussed it, we've always mentioned the, the white suits because I don't think anything else happened in the match. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why it's not even mentioned, was it? It's such a dry yeah. Cup final. But yeah, it is worth mentioning for that suits. And the, the two singles that are out at the time. I think it's pass and move to the Liverpool groove. Yeah. And was it... Um, yeah. Tribe, oh, the Man United one's completely lost me now, but that was that yeah. was good as well. No, it's going to go. It's in the book. Buy the book. It's in the book. Um, but no, yeah, the FA Cup final, of course, the Man United won the FA Cup and Aston Villa won the League Cup final that season as well. We should mention that uh, against Leeds. Um, so that's finish on out players that time forgot. Um, Matthew, let's come to you first. Pluck a name from the, the 90s that we haven't heard for a while. Well, it's quite handy, actually. You just mentioned United getting beaten by York in the League Cup. Now, that season... United had played a load of kids at home to York in the it was the first leg of the League Cup first round as it was then, you know, two legs, and United were beaten three nil at home, incredibly by York City. Uh, the second leg I remember going to and United won two nil, so they went out three two on aggregate. But one of the players that night was a group 
that went on to become known as the class of 92 and that was terry cook oh and, little um, terry cook yeah yeah it's a bit of a sad story really because i mean you, you look at the um images of those lads class 92 there's a there's a famous one of them all lined up with their yeah. arms on each yeah. other's shoulder the nice drill top and right yeah. At, yeah and right at the back is 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 the aforementioned terry cook and it was a bit sad because by all accounts he was looked upon as a fantastic uh, prospect um and it just never happened for him i think he I think he, I think he played that, that game against York. I think he played three or four league games. He set up a goal for Ryan Giggs against Bolton at the beginning of the 95-96 season and then was never seen again. He had an injury and obviously I think he was actually a winner. So I think he had Beckham to compete with yeah. and he did he had a bad knee injury which basically put him out for a few months and in that time Beckham obviously made that position his own and then he went on to try and yeah, re- reconstruct his career. He went on loan to a few clubs. I think he went. Up, I think he ended up signing for Manchester. I think City bought him for about did, a million yeah. pounds yeah. actually. Um, but he never really, uh, never really got back to where he was, and he went. Ended up uh, finishing his career. I think it was at Sunderland, Birmingham, Wrexham, and then he ended up playing in Azerbaijan. I think. Yeah, I was just, just, just reading that that his final yeah, club was a club in Azerbaijan. Bloody hell! He was in the states. So I mean, it's a bit of a sad story. You never know with these players, do you? They always say, "Oh, you know, he was one of the class of '92, and he could have been this, and he could have been that." Sometimes players just don't. Sometimes they're just not quite at that level. But it's just a bit sad that so many of that group went on to be so well known, particularly in this season. And uh, Cook was one of those that wasn't, but he's still one of those well-known names. I mean, if you speak to United fans, they'll still talk fondly of of Terry Cook for, for, for just for being part of that group really and uh, yeah played in America and a, and a decent guy yeah, yeah. he's played a lot of games for Colorado Rapids and then he went to Australia and Queensland Fury as well so he's been about no good name yeah. David can you uh, pluck another name for us then from the obscurity of 90s football well you're not going to believe this but I wrote down my bit of paper Scott Sellers sweet left foot <laughs> <laughs> um, however seeing as you've sort of defunct that that theory by you know, bring them on the show. Um, I'll go with his opposite number, which was Rule Fox, who oh. played on the other wing. Um, probably slightly more well-known because he went on to play for Tottenham and things like that. But um, Fox and Sellers were a great partnership to, to provide Cole and Beardsley. Um, that team had finished third. Uh, unfortunately for Scott Sellers, he was replaced by Janola, who was an upgrade in just about every sense, I'm afraid to say. But um, he was he's a bit of a cult hero amongst Newcastle fans for a free kick he scored against uh, against Sunderland. But um yeah, Rule Fox, he was uh he was one of the sort of the earlier flair players in the Keegan era. Um and he was uh played down both wings in his time, so yeah. he was uh, underrated. Yeah, I think I was going to say he was underrated, and he played for Montserrat as an international, which I've just read, which is something I never <laughs> knew. Did play, get a couple of England B caps as well, but no, yeah, I remember bloody quick as well, wasn't he, Rolf? Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that, guys. Um, before we go, just to let people know, firstly, Matthew, where can they find you on social network? Uh, Matthew J. Christ on Twitter, uh, matthewchrist.co.uk. There's a few, well, it's a lot of articles there, mostly talking about the things we talk about on this show really old football and players and back in my day kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what i'd say and david where can people find your blog on twitter all right so the blog itself is uh, cm9798.co.uk uh, and my twitter handle is just uh, at cm9798 and the book is available from all good bookshops i imagine and some bad uh, ones too 
just Amazon in the modern world yeah, for, an old, for an yeah. old book. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Well, thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure having you both on. Um, join us again next time because next time we are taking another break from our uh, countdown just because we've suddenly realised it was our 50th episode next time out. Yep, 50 episodes of Alive and Kicking. And we've got a very special guest. There's no secret because I've already said it on Twitter. Me and Alexi Lalas go 45 minutes, a whole half of football, talking everything you can imagine that you want to talk to Alexi Lalas about. It's an absolutely brilliant interview too. So do look forward to that in our next episode. Then following that, we'll get on to 96, 97. We've got Joel Young back on the show to talk about Middlesbrough's roller coaster of the season. But until then, I've been Ash Rose. This is Alive and Kicking. Keep it 90s. 